Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Marion Wallace Dunlop lived in the latter part of the 19th century and the earlier part of the 20th. She lived in the United Kingdom where she was a part of the women's suffrage movement. She fought for women to have the right to vote. Her political stances and her political activities got her arrested on different occasions. In 1909, she was arrested for the third time because she stenciled into one house of the Wall of Commons a statement that essentially asked the king to listen to her plea, to her case, to pay attention to what was happening, that they should be able to have the vote should be able to bring their case and not suffer prosecution. Well, prosecution, they did suffer. She ended up in jail. And it was there that she made a choice that later would become a part of the suffragettes and their movement. I want to read you how she arrived at this and read to you the words that Marion Wallace Dunlop stated. While she was in jail, she said, I claim the right recognized by all civilized nations that a person imprisoned for a political offense should have first division treatment, first class treatment. And as a matter of principle, not only for my own sake, but for the sake of others who may come after me, I am now refusing all food until this matter is settled to my satisfaction. She stopped eating. She went on a hunger strike. The authorities weren't quite sure how to respond to this. They didn't know what to do, except they knew they didn't want a martyr on their hands. And so here this woman stopped eating, hunger strike, and 91 hours later the authorities caved, and they released her from prison. She managed, through her hunger strike, to move the arms that would not move, to force them to act in her behalf. Now, she is not the only one who has engaged in such ways with higher authorities above them. We could probably put together quite a list of people who have done that, and it would include the name Mahatma Gandhi, who on a variety of different occasions also went on a hunger strike. In fact, through his hunger strike, he forced the mighty British Empire to come to heel, to come to the table, to listen to his demands, to engage and respond in a way that helped fulfill what Gandhi desired. That's the nature of a hunger strike. The whole purpose of it is to get some kind of higher authority to act, to listen to one's demands, and to act in accordance with them. Now, somewhere along in there, if you're a person of faith and if you have been following Scripture, you begin to draw a parallel. You begin to make some associations that aren't entirely comforting. In fact, honestly, they can be quite troublesome. 
because there is a discipline in the Christian journey, in the spiritual life, that has some similarities to a hunger strike. We're in a series entitled Holy Habits. And in this series, it's our purpose to look at some of the holy habits in which people who follow Jesus engage if they wish to be growing disciples. If they wish to grow toward maturity in Christ, there are certain disciplines to the growth process. The one we look at today is a discipline, a holy habit called fasting. And I suppose if we thought about it much, the obvious question would be, why do we fast? Why should people stop eating food for a period of time? Why would anybody make that choice to skip breakfast or lunch or dinner or all three? What is it that's at the core of this? Is this some kind of hunger strike against God? Is this his people saying, we're not going to eat anymore until you pay attention, until you act in accordance with what we need and desire? Is that what fasting is? A hunger strike. Now, most of us know that it matters what we put into our bodies. If you've ever tried a workout regimen or you've decided you're going to get in shape or you've decided you're going to lose some weight, you know that what we put into our body matters. That's no secret. In fact, we know that not only the right things, but the right amounts ought to go into our bodies, regardless of what we might like. I mean, for example, I like cookies. I love cookies. <laughs> In fact, if, if you and I were to sit down at a fine restaurant and we were to do some fine dining and have a great meal and the dessert cart came around and the server is showing us the delectable delights that that fine establishment has to offer, I would be likely to pull on the server's sleeve and say, you got any cookies? <laughs> I love cookies. In fact... I was one of the pastors at the Corona Adventist Church some years ago, and I turned 40. And on my 40th birthday, do you know what they did in the worship service? They gave me 40. Are you ready for this? They gave me 40 dozen cookies. <laughs> 40 dozen home-baked cookies. It took me almost a week to eat all those things. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Those were some righteous people. Now, I, this is not a suggestion. This is just a story. <laughs> I love cookies. But even I know you cannot just keep putting them in if you want to have any semblance of health or fitness. So we know that. We understand that what we take in has an effect on our spiritual life. But our question today isn't that. Here's our question today. Our question today is, can what I stop putting into my body affect my spiritual life? In other words, is there such a thing as a benefit from a no-cal diet, spiritually speaking? What is the purpose of a fast? Is it just a hunger strike? God, I'm going to stop eating till you act, till you respond. Well, I was, I, was, uh, I was comforted, actually, to, to recognize and to read the words of one Ed Cole, 
who in talking about fasting says this. I want you to listen to these words. It's just brief. A fast is not a hunger strike. Fasting submits to God's commands. A hunger strike makes God submit to our demands. Was that he said? Fasting submits to God's commands. In other words, what Cole is saying is fasting is an act that brings us into harmony with the will of God. It allows us to focus in such a fashion that we are thinking about, praying about, purposing to come into harmony with his will. That's fasting. Okay, it's not a hunger strike. I can accept that. But again, I still have a question about its purpose. Well, drawing together from Scripture and from the different scholars and theologians who write about fasting, here's a definition of fasting that I would offer for your consideration. Fasting is what happens when we abstain from a normal routine in order to focus on a spiritual activity. Fasting is an action, it's a discipline, where we abstain from a normal routine in order to focus on a spiritual activity. So what does Scripture suggest about fasting? I'm going to start with the words of Jesus. We're going to go to Matthew 6, to the Sermon on the Mount, and we dive right into the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. He's come to a section in the Sermon on the Mount where he is addressing hypocrisy. And in addressing hypocrisy, he talks about the three cardinal acts of piety in ancient Judaism, giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And so we join him when he comes to talking about fasting. Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 16. Here's what Jesus says. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they're fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus assumes his followers will fast. He assumes it. He says, when you fast. He doesn't command it. He doesn't prohibit it. In one place, he sounds almost like he does, for that time anyway, when he says, you can't ask my disciples to fast because these attendants to the bridegroom can't fast while the bridegroom is still with them. The day will come when they will fast. Here he just assumes fasting. When you fast, he's not so much interested in the act of fasting as he is in the attitude of fasting. What should the attitude be? Well, there were people, he here calls them hypocrites. There were people in his day and time who were very careful to let everybody else know what they were doing. Didn't wash their face, didn't wash their hair, didn't shave. They wanted it to be known, I'm suffering for my spiritual life. And Jesus says, don't be like them. In fact, listen to the old Scottish scholar William Barclay as he writes about what it was like in that day and time for those who were fasting, he says, Jesus was condemning fasting when it was used as an ostentatious parade of piety. The Jewish days of fasting were Monday and Thursday. These were market days. 
And into the towns and villages, and especially into Jerusalem, there crowded people from the country. The result was that those who were ostentatiously fasting would on those days have a bigger audience to see and admire their piety. There were many who took deliberate steps to see that others could not miss the fact that they were fasting. They walked through the streets with hair deliberately unkempt and disheveled, with clothes deliberately soiled and disarrayed. They even went to great to the lengths of deliberately whitening their faces to accentuate their paleness. This was no act of humility. It was a deliberate act of spiritual pride and ostentation. Look at me. Look at all that I'm doing. Look at all that I'm suffering just to further my spiritual life. Jesus says, you see that? Don't be like that. When you fast, he says... Let it be something private, something personal between you and God. Continue to follow your normal grooming activities so that nobody can tell the difference. But again, he assumes that it will happen. He assumes that this holy habit will continue. This moment in time when we withdraw from our normal routines in order to focus on some special spiritual reality. So what is that special spiritual reality on which we focus? The truth is the Bible suggests a variety of them. I want to talk to you about just three of them. Because these three are key to what the Bible has to say about fasting. If you're wondering, what is its purpose? Why should I do it? These three might help. So the first one. Fasting was a facet, an aspect of mourning. Fasting was an aspect of of mourning. I want to take you to 2 Samuel 1 to give you a biblical example of that. You remember David, David who has been on the run from King Saul, David who has befriended Jonathan, the king's son, David who has been waiting in the wings for God to push him to center stage. In 2 Samuel 1, David receives news that most people would think would be very good news. Saul has been killed in battle. But he also receives news that Jonathan has died. And in actual fact, he will respond to both deaths. I want you to notice what happens when David and his men become aware of the fact that Saul and Jonathan have died. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting with verse 11, says this. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. The messenger delivers the word. Saul and Jonathan are dead. And David and his men respond in mourning. It says they wept and they mourned and they fasted. Anyone who has been through a grief experience is not surprised at that. Anyone who has mourned can absolutely understand that. 
You can think back to the time when you heard the news, when the diagnosis was delivered, and you can remember that your stomach revolted. It didn't want anything, and in fact, it wanted to throw out what was already there. You went into a downward spiral, and in those early hours, in those early days, you had one person after another coming to you saying, here, eat something. You've got to keep your strength up. And what did you say? I I don't want anything. I have no appetite. Please keep food away from me. Mourning was, was, was accompanied by fasting. Was it voluntary? Maybe in some cases. Was it a response of grief? Probably in many cases. Now, there is some hope in there. Because not only was mourning, pardon me, fasting, an aspect of mourning, but Jesus had something to say about those who mourn. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In other words, at some point in time, and especially when the kingdom of God arrives, fasting will become feasting. Sorrow will become joy. But for that period of time, fasting was an aspect of mourning. There's a second biblical reality, however. Not only was fasting an aspect of mourning, fasting was a part of petition. It was a part of petition. In other words, when there was some deep and pressing need that need to be made, that need to be laid at the feet of God, when there was trouble on the horizon, when people needed to bring before him deep and urgent desires, fasting was often a part of that. Fasting was a part of petition. I want to take you to another Old Testament book for an example of that. Nehemiah chapter 1. There in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see Nehemiah in the citadel of Susa. He's attending the king. Some of his compatriots have returned home, and he's waited to hear news. How are things back in the homeland? How are the people? How is the city? How are the walls? He's waited to hear this news. And finally in Nehemiah 1, the news comes. And they tell him exactly what's going on back in the homeland. I want you to notice that Nehemiah 1, beginning with verse 3, they said to me, it says, in other words, the messengers that have come, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. If we were to continue reading in Nehemiah 1, we would get his prayer, his prayer of petition where he's coming before God and he's saying, God, please heed my prayer, listen to my petition, hear my cry for my people, for my homeland, for our city. And fasting is integral to what he does. Fasting was a part of petition. But understand this. It wasn't the kind of of part of petition where it's trying to strong-arm God into acting. Rather, what it is, it's a relational act. 
any one of us who lives in a relationship of any kind, and that pretty well covers the waterfront, who lives in a relationship of any kind recognizes that there come moments in time in that relationship when something that is so urgent, so pressing, so much demanding attention presents itself that you take your normal routines and brush them aside and you focus on that. We've all had those. Could be a roommate, could be a colleague at work, could be a spouse. But something happens and you realize that you need to approach and deal with and address this issue and it has such urgency attached to it that your normal routines are pushed to the side. And this is your focus. That's Nehemiah. He's in the middle of his day-to-day duties, his day-to-day activities. The news comes, and everything on which he's focused, it's as though it's pushed aside. He weeps, he mourns, he fasts. He comes to God in prayer, and he says, God, this petition is so urgent that I don't want any routine duties, any routine acts to come between you and me and dealing with this reality. In that sense, fasting need not be just food because there are many other normal duties and routines in which we engage that may at certain times need to be pushed aside. Listen to the words of the great Christian scholar James I. Packer, J.I. Packer, as he writes about this holy habit called fasting. He writes, we tend to think of fasting as going without food. But we can fast from anything. If we love music and decide to miss a concert in order to spend time with God, that's fasting. It is helpful to think of the parallel of human friendship. When friends need to be together, they will cancel all other activities in order to make that possible. There's nothing magical about fasting. It's just one way of telling God that your priority at the moment is to be alone with him, sorting out whatever is necessary. And you have canceled the meal, party, concert, or whatever else you had planned to do in order to fulfill that priority. That's fasting. You've been there in your human relationships maybe at times that would be a good place to be in your relationship with God. And maybe that's why the text that was so well recited this morning for our scripture reading by Debbie Lynn in Isaiah 58 says what it does. Because to the people of Isaiah's day, the act of fasting had just become a rote, a ritual, kind of like it was in the day of Jesus. We're just doing this. We're just abstaining from food. And God says, that's not what fasting is about. Fasting is a relational reality. Either we are connecting and we are deepening our relationship and developing what needs to be developed at this point in time, or you're using that time to make a difference in other people's lives. The poor the homeless, those who need friendship. Fasting is not just what you're not doing. It's what you are. No wonder that fasting, fasting came accompanied by petition because petition often has to do with our relationship with God. 
So what is fasting? It is a time when we withdraw from our normal routine activities to focus on a special spiritual reality. Fasting was an aspect of mourning. Fasting was a part of petition. But thirdly, fasting was a sign of repentance. Fasting was a sign of repentance. Now, you could find many examples of this in Scripture. Many examples of time when people fasted and prayed and repented before God. I want to take you just to one of those examples. This from a book we studied within the past year, the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, in this particular place in Daniel's book, Daniel has come to an understanding of this time period of Jeremiah's and how it played into the exile of his people and the need on the part of Daniel and his people to repent from what they had done, from how they had treated God, how they had broken the covenant. And so at this point in time, Daniel repents. I'm going to read you the context and then just the opening part of the prayer to get a sense of what's happening. Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. And the prayer continues in like fashion. In other words, as Daniel has begun to understand this prophecy of Jeremiah and how it plays into all that has happened in the tragic history of Israel and specifically his part of it, he comes to a realization of the way he and his people have broken the covenant and he says at that point in his heart, then we must repent and so he repents. He fasts before God. Sackcloth and ashes. He mourns. He comes in prayer and says, God, we have sinned. And I don't want any normal routines or duties in my life to interrupt my prayer to you to make sure that we're right before we go any further in any normal life. Everything else is interrupted. The normal routine duties of dress and food and all the rest take a back seat to getting right with God. Fasting was a sign of repentance. I want to read you someone who followed in the footsteps of Daniel. The same kind of recognition the same kind of response. It'll take us a couple of minutes to read it or so, but I think it's time well spent. It's a proclamation 
Interestingly enough, a proclamation coming from the President of the United States. I want you to listen to this. Proclamation written by the President, President Abraham Lincoln. It was at the height of the Civil War. The nation was divided as it has never been before or since. We were killing one another in record numbers. Race was at the forefront. Some fighting for and some fighting against this horrible idea of slavery. It was while the nation was being torn asunder that President Abraham Lincoln sat down at the behest of the Senate, no less, and wrote these words. Listen. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by resolution requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord, and insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, we have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom or virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us, then, to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, in compliance with the request... And fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship in their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings 
that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. In witness whereof, I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this 30th day of March, A.D. 1863, and of the independence of the United States, the 87th, by the President, Abraham Lincoln, William H. Seward, Secretary of State. He follows in the footsteps of Daniel. Fasting is a sign of repentance. Now, let's be clear. Let's be honest. We, those of us who gather here as the body of Christ, we can't make choices for those out there. We can't decide actions which they will undertake. And we, as this local body, have little influence on what happens in Washington, D.C., but what we do have is responsibility for us. We do have the right, the privilege, indeed the call on our lives to come before God as a body of believers in repentance for any of the ways we have failed where our hearts have been hard, where our lives have been cold, where we have mistreated others because they differ from us, because we don't agree that they are somehow creations of God if they have a different origin, a different religion, a different color. We are called to repent before God in humility It's impingent upon us as a church community because we can make choices. Rather than cursing the darkness, as one person put it, let us light a candle, a light in the darkness that says we will lead the way in humility before God and with a desire to live the ethic of Jesus we repent. That was another time fasting was appropriate. It was that moment when all the other routine realities were edged aside so that we might fix this spiritual reality. That's fasting. It's not strong-arming God but it's pushing aside routine duties, routine realities, routine needs for a brief period of time to focus on a deep spiritual concern. Fasting was an aspect of mourning. Fasting was a part of petition. Fasting was a sign of repentance. So I want to invite you to consider two ways. Two ways to respond to this call. 
One is general, the other specific. The general way that I would encourage you to think about responding is to remain open to the Spirit of God in your life, whether that be today, tomorrow, next month, or next year. Remain open to the Spirit of God in your life that when those moments arrive, when those, those issues explode, when those situations unfold, that requires spiritual attention. Be willing to nudge aside other routine realities and make this a priority with God. God, until this is settled, you and I, we're going to talk. That's my first suggestion. Remain open to the Spirit of God in an ongoing manner, on an ongoing basis. That's the general suggestion. The specific suggestion is this. This coming Monday, two days from now, October 2, I'm going to fast. I'd love to have one or two or a thousand of you join me. I'm going to fast just asking God for His special intervention in our church community, in our church global, in our country, in our world. Whether it be out of mourning, petition, repentance, or all three, I want to fast and just take time that I might engage in otherwise to pray about such realities. And I want to invite you to join me. You can make your fast as you see fit in your heart and conscience. You may decide to fast from food or you may decide to fast from solid food and drink juice and water. You may decide to fast as some scholars believe they did in Scripture by eating nothing after sunup and nothing until after sundown. Or your fast may have little to do with food. You may fast from social media, from your television, from your smartphone. That's between you and God, however you choose to do it. I want to invite you to fast and pray with me on Monday. Our country needs it. Our church needs it. This coming week, we begin annual council, pressing matters, are before us. Let us not enter them without prayer. And then on Monday evening, this Monday, 6 o'clock, come here and join me at the church for one hour, 6 to 7, where we will pray communally as a group. That's my specific suggestion. But however you choose to respond, just know this. Fasting is not a hunger strike. It's not trying to hold God hostage. Fasting is a relational, holy habit that pushes aside other routines to make certain that all is well between God and our souls. God of grace, we thank you that others have blazed the way before us we thank you for the privilege we have of prioritizing our relationship with you. We ask that you would comfort our mourning, that you would respond to our petitions, and that you would accept our repentance. 
so that all would be well between us and you. In the name of Jesus, amen.